no, no, hang on. This is not a good All right, cool. yes, fine. Ready? Welcome to the bite-sized edition of the Editor Roundtable podcast. Here on the Roundtable, we're dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the story grid method developed by Sean Coyne. In these episodes, we bring you some shorter solo articles and interviews on topics that interest us as writers. Hi, this is Kim Kessler, and today, Anne Holly and I are exploring the power of past and present with stories that include dual timelines, onstage events in the present and the past that together create a rich global story arc. So join us for a quick bite of writing insight starting right now. So these kinds of stories have been on my mind lately for many reasons. First and foremost, a client and I have been working to weave together past and present storylines for her debut novel. And I have several stories of my own, stories in progress, that I'm wondering if and how best to include onstage scenes from the past. Now, I recently watched two great examples of stories that are powerfully structured across dual timelines. Um, There's the current TV series, This Is Us, which is a multi-generational story of a blended family. We have The Present, which is the story of three siblings, Kevin, Kate, and Randall, that are turning 36 and navigating their lives. And then in the past, we have the story of their parents, Rebecca and Jack Pearson, who are raising their children. Now, the other one is the 2012 film Philomena, based on the true story of an Irish mother looking for a son that she was forced to give up for adoption 50 years before. Now, in the present, we have Philomena searching for her son with the help of a reporter. And in the past, we have Philomena as a young woman um, with her son in a convent. So they are both fantastic. And if you haven't seen them, I highly recommend them, especially if you like laughing and crying in the span of the same story, because I certainly know that I do. Yeah, so do I. I have a client with a dual timeline story that's kind of interesting. And in his case, the timelines are 2,000 years apart. And the only connection is an archaeological find that takes place in the present that links the archaeologist to this distant past. So the link between the stories is mostly thematic. And the question of where to interrupt one story to go to the other, to jump to the other one and take up the other narrative is really tricky to answer. We're not going to try and cover that. I don't think in this episode, we're going to hit on it in a later episode, but that's kind of what we're aiming for is to really answer the question, two completely parallel dual timelines that don't meet, how do you connect them? When and why? Mm -hmm. Awesome. So stories that deal with these multiple timelines are not simple or easy. They're, they really are a complex story form. And that's precisely why I asked Anne to help me get to the bottom of things. Um, Anne looked at complex story forms in season four. And you know I did a quick look through our episodes and it shows that we've actually covered numerous stories with dual timelines. And I've got a handy reference list in the show notes of today's episodes. And you can take a look at that and kind of see what the story was in the present versus the story in the past and, and see what you think about that. So today, we're going to begin our discussion by taking a closer look at what Anne is coining as converging timelines. So that's to say a story that establishes a present and then jumps um, at some point back to the past before catching back up to the present again. What we're going to try to figure out is why would a writer choose to bounce around in time rather than the more straightforward linear structure? And 
the best answer that we can point to is narrative drive. Now, Valerie gave us some fantastic insight into this topic in season four as well. That was a good season. Um, so we know that there are three types of narrative drive. We know there's mystery, which is when the protagonist has more information than the audience, and that creates curiosity. We know suspense is when the protagonist has the same amount of information as the audience, and that creates curiosity and concern. And then we have dramatic irony is when the protagonist has less information than the audience, which creates concern for the protagonist. Now, I would argue that empathy is necessary for every story, but it is essential in stories that are driven by concern. If we aren't emotionally connected to the character, then we can't be concerned about them. Okay, what does this have to do with dual timelines in a story? Well, the order that information is delivered to the audience, that is, which events in which time period come first, second, third, and so on, will determine the form of narrative drive that's taking place. And so while a story that is told linearly may generate narrative drive through suspense, a story that jumps around in time is more likely to use mystery or dramatic irony. Based on their storytelling intent, the writer must decide which form of narrative drive will best create the experience that they want the audience to have, and so which structure will help them achieve this. This also directly ties to the writer's point of view and narrative device choices. So we want to see if we can make sense of the what, when, why, how, not to mention if at all, of writing a story with dual timelines. So... Anne, can you walk me through your thoughts on what you see as this convergent timeline? Yeah, I can, but my screen is acting up. Hang on just a second. Sorry. <laughs> There's some suspense happening right now. <laughs> it's a suspense, yeah. Um, well, I think a good place for a discussion of nonlinear timelines, as you already suggested, Kim, is to start with why would you want to write it that way? Now, I have a writer friend who has said, what you need to know to write your story isn't the same as what I need to know to read your story. And I think that's a really important idea. One of the commonest problems in manuscripts that I'm asked to read, and I got to admit in manuscripts that I've written myself, is too much backstory, right? Too much backstory is a problem for modern readers of a Victorian novel like Jane Eyre, which we're going to talk about here. And it was interesting to look at the movie adaptation that came out in 2011 as a model for handling that problem. Now, Jane Eyre is a Victorian novel. It starts at the beginning of her life and goes in exhaustive detail through the end of the story not to the end of her life, but to the happy ending of the story. Now, the film in 2011 used a type of dual timeline to avoid this problem, and I'm calling it a converging timeline. And it's one great way to get yourself out of the backstory bind and tell that real story that you really meant to tell. Jane Eyre, the movie, opens uh, just after the global crisis of the novel. It's about not quite three quarters of the way through the story, right? A woman, it's Jane Eyre, as it happens, is wandering across the moors of Yorkshire in terrible weather. It's very dramatic, very famous. She's desperate. She's alone. And she knocks at the door of an isolated house seeking shelter. Now, shortly after this opening, we zoom right back to what was the beginning of the novel, which is to say the beginning of Jane's life. And the film mostly proceeds pretty linearly from there. There are some exceptions, but basically it, it proceeds linearly and gradually converges back on what we saw as the opening moment, which is why I'm calling this a converging timeline story. 
This is a popular trick for creating a nonlinear timeline. You used to see it a lot in series television, the kind where you saw kind of the same characters every week solving a mystery or a crime or something. And the episode would open, for example, on some critical event like, say, your investigators are being pinned down in a gunfight. And then it would cut to a card saying three days earlier, and we would then start to find out how they got into that situation. So you got to ask yourself, what's the value of you switching timelines like this in this particular way. First of all, it raises a big question in your mind, right? How did this character get to this place, into this fix, into these desperate straits, being pinned down in a gunfight, whatever it is? In Jane Eyre's case, how did she come to be so desperate and alone on the moors? And in the case of that Criminal Minds episode that I was just talking about, how did these well-known characters get into this jam and how will they get out of it? So we keep watching to find out. Now, clearly, and this is going back to narrative drive here, the character knows the answer in that opening scene, right? Because whatever happened to Jane, she knows, but we don't know, right? Whatever happened to the Criminal Minds gang, they know, but we don't yet know. Okay, the character knows more than the reader or viewer, and that's mystery. And it's a form of narrative drive because it raises a question that drives you, the reader or viewer, to keep watching or viewing or reading. But here's an interesting twist. The moment we go back in time from that opening at the that started at the glo global crisis of the story and go back to their past, now we know something that the character doesn't know, the younger character, the earlier, three days earlier character. We've already seen that at some point when Jane Eyre has grown up, she'll be alone and wandering on the moor in desperation. Now, when you, the reader or viewer, know something that the character doesn't know yet, that's called dramatic irony. This probably can't be overemphasized. And it is a form of narrative drive because it raises, as Kim said, concern for the character. You care what happens next, and that drives you to keep watching or reading because you're concerned about the character, hopefully because you have empathy for them. Now, so far, this type of nonlinear opening, we've leveraged two forms of narrative drive simultaneously. Mystery, that all-important question the reader or viewer wants the answer to, and dramatic irony, which makes us care what happens to the character next. From the moment we go back in time to Jane's childhood, every single choice she makes along her childhood to adulthood journey, we are doing two things the reader or the viewer, solving the mystery in our mind of how she got to that opening crisis and holding our breath, figuratively speaking, for her, empathizing, already knowing where she's heading, how bad it's going to get. And get this, the third form of narrative drive kicks in along the way. Neither of us, neither Jane nor the viewer, knows yet what's going to happen after that crisis moment that we saw in the opening scene. When both character and reader or viewer have the same amount of information, this is suspense, as Kim has said. Now, the original novel, Jane Eyre, depends almost entirely on suspense. It proceeds from childhood to the end of the story in a linear way. Like I said, the character, young Jane, knows no more about her future than I do. We must absolutely empathize with her in order to care enough to go on this long journey with her. The novel generates that empathy for us by showing us in detail, exhaustive detail in this case, the frightening, unjust, difficult circumstances of Jane's life. She's an underdog and we root for her step by step as her life takes a turn for the better, then for the much, much worse, and finally rises again. But a film, unlike a Victorian novel, does not have all day to engage our empathy, right? 
And a modern novel probably doesn't either. If you're telling a story that covers a long time period, you will have to skip over some of it no matter what. And this brings us back to the problem of backstory. You might say that the chapters of Jane Eyre leading up to her first meeting with Mr. Rochester are just her backstory, the prologue to the real story. One of the best ways to figure out how much of your character's backstory that you should tell and how much to leave out is to try starting your story at the global crisis or climax, the way the film version of Jane Eyre does, and then backtrack and speed on through the past until you reach that crisis point again. When you already have your global crisis on the page, you will know exactly what target the first whole 75% of your story needs to be aiming for. You'll be able to see much more clearly what the reader really needs to know in order to stick with you and your character as your character approaches that crisis and climax. And you'll much more easily be able to jettison backstory elements that you needed to understand as the author, but that the reader really doesn't need to know in detail. And then if you do that, you might decide to go back to the linear single storyline after all, but without so much backstory cluttering the way that wasn't really necessary for the reader's empathy, suspense, mystery, and understanding. This is already so helpful to me, and it's making me think a lot about uh, my client's novel and my own novel. And I'm, I'm actually really excited to sit down and think about an outline that I have and thinking about what is the global crisis where would if I were to open it there, what would that look like? And then jumping back and just yeah, just as a as an exercise. I don't know. It's giving me hope to understand this. <laughs> it's a great exercise. Mm -hmm. It's I did this for my novel. I was stuck with where is my actual beginning, so I just threw everything over and I said, okay, I'm going to start at the global crisis. It involved like several weeks of research and you know a whole bunch of stuff, and I started writing it that way. And it was pretty cool, but I realized it, it didn't take long to realize that I knew that I needed to get my character to that point, but that's telling that whole story was not what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to the linear format, but I knew a lot more about that global crisis. Yeah. Um, having written it and then decided to you know, shift back to a linear story. So it's a really good exercise, even if you don't stick with the converging timeline format. Yeah, that's excellent. I really, really like that. So all of this discussion, you know, it really, it reminds me of the film Passengers, which we looked at a few seasons ago um, <laughs> when we were looking at films that didn't work. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's so, you know, it didn't work all that well, right? Um, and it was told linearly, right, from the male point of view character, Jim, which was played by Chris Pratt. Um, and in the premise is that he's awoken early from hypersleep. You know, he spends a year in utter solitude until he makes that difficult choice to wake another passenger, the beautiful Aurora, played by Jennifer Lawrence, which at that point dooms her to live out the rest of her life alone or with Jim, right, on the ship as well. So it's really a death sentence when he makes that choice. Now, our conclusion, uh, one of the many different conclusions that we had when we looked at why that film didn't work, was that this story, it really could have benefited from a converging timeline structure. In fact, there's a video from one of my favorite YouTubers, Nerdwriter1, and it's called Passengers Rearranged, and it's fantastic. The link is here in the show notes for you to check out. I highly recommend you watch it. So in it, he recommends rearranging the story to have Aurora as the main point of view character, and we would shift that opening of the story to when she wakes up. 
Now, this would change the narrative drive to suspense for Aurora, where we know as much as she does, and then it would become mystery for Jim. So Jim would have more information because he knows everything that's happened since he woke up and, and we don't. The converging timeline structure would come in as we flash back into the past intermittently and then gradually understand what he went through and ultimately what he did to her, leading to this sort of horrific you know, reveal. And in the Passengers Rearranged video, it definitely changes the tone of the story. It becomes feels a, much more sinister, I think, and creepy and you know, there's just it, which is kind of really what it is. I think that's why it struggles so much as it is because I don't really know how to feel about Jim. Right. <laughs> you know, passengers as as it is in the linear format, it lost most of its narrative drive the moment he decided to wake Aurora up because what began in suspense shifted to dramatic irony at that moment. But here it's not even for the protagonist. It's it's dramatic irony for Aurora, uh, where we know what happened to her, but she doesn't. But we're still dealing with suspense from Jim's point of view. And now all of this suspense is shifted to what's going to happen when Aurora finds out what he did to her. And when she does, then at that point, what's going to happen? So like I said, all of this really made a mess of the genre. It made a weird viewer experience. It went from you know, a, a sweet, happy, kind of silly thing at the beginning and the way that he is. And then it was really hard. And even though I know I said earlier, I like to laugh and cry in the same film, this is not what I mean, right? This story is not what I mean. It doesn't, it's not cohesive enough to really work. So it really could have benefited from from switching things around. I will admit that on the whole, I will advise clients generally to try for a linear story format first, just because it's much more likely to get done, right? And it's simpler. And most of my clients are not like super experienced writers. So the interesting thing about Passengers is that it is an example of where I would have advised a client to actually use a nonlinear divergent or convergent divergent um, timeline structure to make it better and make it actually work. Yeah, and I think that's really important. We hear a lot like, oh, well, if it's your first novel, like, don't try to do anything complicated, just write it. And I guess there's a part of me that just says, well, ultimately it's what's going to work best for the story and it's really what are you going to get excited about because exactly. writing yeah. a novel is a lot of work and yeah. it's really hard and you're going to want to quit a lot of times so you better love it enough to stick with it long enough to, to get it done so if that means you know exploring a story out of order even like Anne was saying about even just to kind of get an understanding of where to begin and how you want to tell your story um, I would say go for it right and and ultimately make the right decision for the story and don't be afraid of tackling hard things because that's how we get better. Exactly. And if it's in your heart of hearts to tell a nonlinear, complex story form, um, we're going to try and help you with that in the next few of these bite-sized episodes where we look at other examples of how to mess with time in your stories. I cannot wait. So that's it for this episode. We'll be back um, with some follow-ups in the near future. Just a quick shout-out. I'm proud to announce that my debut novel, According to Plan, is now available in paperback as well as ebook. Um, that's been a fun adventure. <laughs> I did it a bite at a time, but it's coming out. I've really been blown away by the feedback that I've gotten from readers and it makes me eager and, you know, slightly less terrified to write my next novel. So thank you for that. Um, if you're interested in picking up a copy or connecting with me, you can go to KimberKessler.com. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-K-E-S-S-L-E-R.com. 
And over at Pages and Platforms, my colleagues Sue Campbell and Rochelle Ramirez and I will be giving a workshop next week on fixing your scenes that don't work. So check that out and sign up at pagesandplatforms.com. Thanks so much, guys. Stay tuned for the teaser trailer for Season 7 that's coming next week. Cheers. Cheers.